Alrighty. Hello, and welcome back to episode two of the Thinking Over podcast. If you're back here again, thank you for joining me. It means you actually found value in the last one, which is great news. Um, I'm not going to waffle on for too long. We'll get it straight into it. But first thing I want to say, I had a lot of positive feedback from the first one, which I find quite amusing because I'm sure there was stuff to improve. So if you do have feedback where you think we could improve, please send it through. I know people say they love criticism. Criticism is always hard, but it's necessary to adapt and pivot. So if you have any suggestions, recommendations, ideas, do DM me and I will obviously listen to your advice. Now, the title of today's episode, hopefully is a little bit clickbaity, why today's mental health model is fractured. And that's a big call, but obviously I'm going to try and back it up and demonstrate, well, what it is and what can be done about it. So for me, when we have a clear problem, let's say mental health in this regard, and it's treated with a clear solution, we have basically two pathways right now, medication and therapy, and then obviously awareness throughout society, and the problem still exists and sometimes even in a higher proportion, well then obviously the treatment needs some sort of tweaking. Now it's not completely broken, but I'm going to substantiate those claims by doing three things. The first thing I'm going to do is outline the current treatment model to demonstrate what we're actually doing. Secondly, I'm going to demonstrate that the problem isn't improving, at least not in the proportion we'd like to see it. And third, suggest why that is and what we can actually do about it differently that can hopefully remedy the problem to a greater degree. So here we go. Part one, today's treatment model. Today's mental health model is fairly straightforward and it's the same as any illness treatment model. So let's say you have common, a common cold. The first step to educating a society about how to treat an illness is we educate about symptoms. So we educate that you've got a runny nose, you've got a sore throat, you have a fever, that's probably likely to be a cold. The first step is to deal with that in your own home. Can you take any medication? Can you rest, recover, ingest good food, home remedies? If you can't, and if people around you can't help you, you escalate to a professional. You head to a GP or a clinical practice or maybe a hospital in the worst case. You ask them to diagnose your symptoms to a further degree so that you're able to get prescription medication which can help with that problem. And eventually, the higher you escalate through the treatment model, the better it is at fixing your problems, and eventually you go back to normal and you're healthy again. So obviously, the mental health model is straightforward. We have a symptom education, help at home, then we elevate to a professional and we get professional help. So right now, what does that look like in actual practice? Well, firstly, we d- develop a diagnostics criteria for disorders. So let's take depression, for example. If you're not familiar with psychological uh, theory, we have a manual called the DSM-5, the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Obviously, it's the fifth revision, and the first one came out in 1952 under the supervision of the United Nations, and it was an effort to actually standardize and clearly identify the symptoms and criteria for a diagnosable mental disorder. And obviously, as as the years have gone on, we've revised and expanded our understanding of how the brain works. Many more disorders have been included. We're at roughly 300 disorders right now. Um, And it gives us a pretty black and white standard to know what classifies as clinical depression or major depressive disorder and what is simply just depressive symptoms that haven't quite reached that threshold yet. So it's important first that we develop diagnostic criteria. Now once that criteria is developed, we promote those relevant symptoms to the wider audience and wider community through, right now it's mass media marketing, through government programs, making mental health something we talk about. Um, it, It is all over social media because it's a common problem that we all experience. And it's all an effort to raise awareness. So we're trying to increase the competency of people in society at recognizing these symptoms and dealing with them when they first pop up so that they don't progress into more dangerous things. That's why all these organizations are so big on conversation, 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 because through conversation, the idea is that we can reveal 
problems before they grow into things that are seriously chronic. Step three is to provide avenues for getting help. So right now we have a few main ones. We have immediate crisis helplines, like Lifeline. You can call them 24-7 or one three one 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 four. They have very good services, which I'll get to later in, in the episode. Black Dog Institute, Beyond Blue, Are You Okay? The normal institutes that have really pushed for this mental health agenda to be mainstream. Then we have support groups, information centers, social media accounts. You can reach out to accounts online, even social media influencers who push mental health, myself included. This is part of the role we try to serve. You have professional talk therapy and psychiatric intervention. So what that means is our two main models for helping with a, a significant mental disorder is psychotherapy or talk therapy, talking to a psychologist who can hopefully provide you proven strategies to remedy your situation. And the second is psychiatric intervention. The difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist is that a psychiatrist is a, a medical doctor. They're able to provide medication uh, in terms of antidepressants and other things like that. And so if you need one of those two interventions, talk therapy or medication, they're your two avenues. Unfortunately, the problem in Australia is that the average wait time for a psychiatrist, if antidepressants is what you're looking for, is about six months. So that means there, there must be and there has to be a solution in the interim for that period, however long you're waiting, whether you get through early on a wait list through a cancellation or your bump down, your psychiatrist takes 12 months to get to you. There has to be something to be done in the meantime, and this is part of what this podcast will cover. If you present with an anxious disorder, with depressive symptoms, with manic symptoms, this model is fantastic for identification purposes. We are very good at the diagnosis side of things. Awareness, diagnosis, symptom recognition is something that this country and other Western countries around the world are very, very good at. Eastern countries, developing countries are still catching on and I know I've spoken to people from these countries who still struggle that their nations are somewhat behind in terms of recognizing mental health as a serious inhibiting factor to your ability to go about your life. But the reality is if you look at this in a historical context, we have come an extremely long way. And so for anyone who's concerned that mental health isn't being pushed enough or isn't being talked about enough, isn't being solved enough, we have to recognize and acknowledge what kind of a commendable effort we've made, given that if we take ourselves 100 years back, almost to the date, to the 1920s, there are stories of British soldiers who go onto the battlefield, experience some sort of traumatic event and come back in a state of psychosis. They're not able to function, respond, eat, look after themselves. And initially the, the British Journal of Medicine would classify this as a term called shell shock, which we all know today to be PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. But for a time, it was taboo, it was, it was unimaginable that someone's mind could affect their body. And that was correlated to a direct sign of weakness. And now in fact, if you look at the German side of World War I, they were executing soldiers who came back with shell shock for cowardice because it was unimaginable that people's minds could inhibit their ability to fight. Now if we take a, a brief snapshot of that, from executing people with PTSD to now giving them every support that we can possibly provide, We've come a long way, but obviously there is still a ways to go because this is still what we consider a crisis. So here's where we find the issue. We have great stage one treatments, therapy, medication. But if we're missing those two, there's not much in between that's emphasized as the gold standard, even though the research shows that there clearly are other avenues. Which brings us to part two, the continuing problem. Is the problem continuing? Is it getting worse, staying the same, getting better? Now. Whether we like it or not, rates of mental health diagnoses are, are on the rise. Depressive disorder, ang anxious disorder, and the rates of suicide, which we'll get to in a second. But there are two main theories for this. One is, is it mass diagnosis? The other is, is it mass contagion? What we mean is, 
Is it mass diagnosis? Are more people aware of the symptoms? Have we done such a great job of educating people about what these disorders look like that we're now able to recognize, oh, this is what presents as a depressive disorder. I will go and see someone to get some help, whereas 100 years ago, we, we just didn't do that. Or is it the fact that we're actually spreading this like wildfire? Are we bringing these problems into our lives through inputs like social media? And there's a good argument for that if we look at the correlation of timeline when those elements of our lives have become popularized. But again, with all of these disorders that are diagnosed through the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, there's a subjective element to them. The categories that we present with, they can be observed to a degree, but feel, categories like feelings of, of worthlessness and having thoughts about death are, are always self-expressed, they're self-reported. And so we want to take the most scientific look we can. And in my opinion, the best reflection of mental health, a mental health crisis in our society is rates of suicide. So that's what we're going to focus on right now. Not to ignore rates of other uh, mental illnesses, but to look at something we can observe, which is people dying which is essentially the, the thing we want to prevent. Because with any mental disorder, whether it's psychosis, whether it's bipolar disorder, whether it's even self-harm behaviors, you can bring anyone back from those sorts of experiences. You can still bring them back. But with suicide, that's the end game. If we cannot get that right, if we can't save someone before that end point, there's no second chance. And so we want to prevent that in every circumstance. So that's what we're going to look at. By the way, all the data we're about to use is from Australian data. If you're tuning in from overseas, um, it's very similar in Western countries. There's not a lot of social differences in terms of that. Um, I'm not aware of the data in, in Eastern and, and developing nations, but I'll try and have a look at that at some point. So I'm just going to jump on Lifeline's website. And if you don't know about Lifeline, it is an Australian-based mental health organization, and they are doing an incredible job. If you don't know, they run a a suicide help on a 24-7 emergency crisis line. And there's a bunch of categories. Um, I have a friend who works and volunteers for Lifeline. The work that they do is extremely important and there are genuinely people in crisis with no one to turn to. Now, if that's you, I think I mentioned the number before, 131114, 24-7, they will take care of you and do the best job that they can. Now, if we jump on Lifeline's website, they've got a number of facts readily available, all pulled from the Australian Bureau of Statistics from about 2022, I believe. Nine Australians per day take their own lives. That's twice the amount of people who die on our roads, which is not great to start. 75% of people who take their lives are male. This is actually an interesting stat because it's kind of misleading. Now, more women attempt suicide in proportion uh, to males. There's a number of reasons for this. Um, some people say it's the intent. Some people say it's the lethality of the method of suicide. Um, they've done studies in Europe. They looked in 2017 at 58,000 suicides across the continent in one year. And the attempt rate they found was 20 times higher than the amount of people that actually, if we use the word, succeeded, were able to follow through on attempting suicide. Suicide is the leading cause of death for Australians aged 15 to 44. And that's a, it's a figure I put into one of my own videos is, you're more likely to die taking your own life than in a car accident. Which, to most of us who are typically mentally healthy, seems like a very bizarre figure and that should give you an indication of how prevalent these issues actually are beneath the surface. That is something that we would obviously like to see changing. And there's another interesting study done by um, Cyril and, and others in 2018 where for years we've had this figure that when you take your own life six people are affected which obviously we, we see is a bit unrepresentative. What they found when they've done studies is it's actually something like 135 people that are affected by someone's suicide. 
This is not to put guilt on the person who's attempting or committing suicide. I never see that as a worthwhile argument of thinking of all the people you're leaving behind because it doesn't compute in the person's brain when they're ready to leave. But it should give you an indication of why this is more important than just an immediate family member's problem if someone in their life is considering suicide. This is a societal problem because each person that affects, affects another person in turn, we see this flow on effect of one person's life influencing an entire community. Regardless, all these facts are to say that suicide is a problem that exists, continues, and we're yet to see if it's getting worse or not. And that's what we're going to look at this graph. Now you can find this graph on the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, it's a government website, and it looks at historical rates of suicide. Now at first glance, it doesn't look like we're really in, in the worst of it. Now this extends all the way back to 1907. But if you take a look at this with historical context, it reveals some interesting pictures. Obviously we have some, we're looking at the midline here, it's the, if you're not watching on YouTube, we're just looking at a graph that shows historical trend lines of suicide with both men and women, and then an average middle trend line. So we're going to look at the middle trend line. It, uh, a little bit of a spike around 1915, or not a spike, but a high point, and then it drops off significantly. Now that's accounting for World War I, obviously people were dying in another way, as sad as it is, and again the same problem in 1944, around there, people were off overseas in battle. There's a peak around the 1930s, and that's the Great Depression. A lot of people lost a lot of money. It was a very hard time back then. And then a steady rise up until about 1960s, where it really jumps up to an all-time high in 1963 of 18.4 people per 100,000. Now, this is a time of intense social change in Australia, where a lot of Asian immigration was happening. The civil rights movement was, was being pushed, and people were having to let go of this concept of a white Australia, which was obviously tough for people who had, who'd been in that circumstance, but a necessary push towards a fair and equal Australia. But that integration process and that ad adaption caused a lot of distress and hardship and resentment and racism from white Australians towards immigrants and incoming foreigners, people who are obviously welcome today, who struggled to be assimilated. And unfortunately, rates of suicide did increase around that time, which is a regretful period of our history. Um, and then it steadies off and it lowers and not normalizes, but comes back down. And then we experienced again in 1987, we had Black Monday, which is another financial crisis, another financial crisis towards the late 1990s um, in Southeast Asia and around this area. And then it dropped off again until a low in around 2006, which is around about the lowest point since, well, the Second World War. And it's this little uptick here from 2006 to now that really gives us a reason to be concerned because the trend line is up and we have peaks and troughs and you know different things could be happening. The data gets a little bit skewed around COVID because it was hard to collect information on those sorts of statistics in that period. But unfortunately, the reality is for most people, rates of mental health only increased when you were forced away from community, away from exercise, away from your job and were stuck inside. Can't have done any good for us. But an interesting correlation and a theory that we'd love to explore later on in future episodes potentially is that around 2006 we see this trend start to go upwards but what's interesting is that in 2004 Facebook was founded as a company and in 2010 Instagram was also founded. As they started to take wind and became social phenomenon there's this interesting correlation. Now a lot of people posit the theory that the influence of social media and the presence of social media is directly related to a rise in mental health issues. And it's not a bad theory. The more time we spend living in this virtual reality, comparing ourselves to other people, 
the less time we see valuing ourselves. And they've done studies, especially in adolescent teenage girls, which I will cover in future episodes, that the absence of social media over a two-week period was enough to remedy a significant proportion of depressive and anxious symptoms. Just two weeks. Now, most of us underestimate the power of removing social media from our lives because it's become so commonplace and so necessary to keep connecting with people. But there's a very interesting idea that if you are experiencing heavy symptoms of depression or anxiety, removing that influence is a good place to start an experiment to see what that'll do for your mental health. And the point being, what this graph reveals is that we've come from a, a society that didn't understand shell shock, where suicide rates are around 15 per 100,000, to 2023, where suicide rates are about 15 per 100,000. Except the difference is we have decades worth of research and billions of dollars have gone into suicide prevention, mental health awareness, and it is part of our society today. Why has the problem not shrunk in an incredible proportion to the amount of resources and effort we've been applying onto it? It's as if the tap is wide open, but the bucket just isn't filling up. There's a leak somewhere. And that's where we're going to look at where we've gone wrong. Which brings us to part three, the self-love misconception. Now, there's a common trope in all of these treatment plans that we have, whether it's psychotherapy or medication, that we have to learn to love ourselves again. Now, it's not an illogical process because things like suicidality, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, these are all tied very much to self-worth. It's either I'm not capable, I don't look good enough, I'm, I'm not able to handle the, the stresses head, no one loves me enough, no one will care if I'm gone. Things will always go wrong for me. It's these types of thoughts related closely to self-worth that lead to a lot of major disorders. So how do we fix this? Well, there's two different ways of approaching this problem. It's do we come as we are and learn to love what we see? Is the role of a, a psychologist to help us to love who we presently are? Or do we allow the discomfort that we're experiencing, that we're not capable, that we're not sexy enough, to guide us to something better that we could be. If I'm not capable enough, well, I need to work on the skills that will reinforce my belief that I'm capable. Now, the reality is it's always going to be a bit of both. And leaning one way or the other is not a fantastic idea. But unfortunately, the model that we seem to have shifted towards in this day and age is one of self-love and acceptance as where we are now, which denies in part who and everything that we could be. And it's my firm belief that we should be prioritizing the latter instead of the former. Because what we have on the table, the problem we're dealing with is dire. It's suicide. It is the end game. It's the last step. It's the last resort for a lot of people who've struggled through a lot of things. Now, because the problem is so radical and extreme, it needs radical change to be affected to remedy it. And obviously, if we want to experience radical change in our lives, we have to affect radical change in our behavior and our lifestyles which means violently ripping apart who we were and trying to reconstruct who we are so that we're happy to still be here. Now, it's equivalent to a calorie deficit or calorie surplus when you're trying to put on weight or lose weight. The more you restrict your calories and train, the more weight you will lose or the more weight you will gain if you're trying to gain weight. The change that you see as the result is directly proportional to the change that you affect in your actions. Now, if we're talking about fixing suicide, we need to be radical. Being passive about this, having a conversation with someone, asking them to go to therapy, suggesting they should take medication, these are quite passive actions because we can repeat them, we can regurgitate them, we've heard them all before. But this is a radical problem. Suicide is the end game. You are talking about taking your own life. 
And so it should be proportionally met with the right measures. Everything needs to be dropped and focused right here, right now, on how can we make sure that you're still happy to be here? What problems do we need to solve? What actions do we need to take? How can we help you to make sure that you are still able to enjoy this experience of life? It's a radical change and it comes in every facet of your life. It is not just medication and therapy. It is ensuring you are sleeping right, eating right, exercising, socializing with the right people. You have this overlying, underlying sense of purpose plus all the interventions and then be able to talk about it and then be able to share your experience. Now, if we're not being that radical about a radical problem, then we can't expect radical solutions to the problem. It's as simple as that. And so if we're talking about suicide, we need to take the right approach in the right measure to fix the problem. So what does radical change look like? Well, there are two parts. One is prevention and the other is help for the people who are experiencing these problems. So for the people who are experiencing these problems, we need a better model than just therapy and medication. Now it's been proven through journal studies that exercise is at least one to 1.5 times as effective as medication in remedying the symptoms of major depressive disorder. Exercise off the bat should be a fundamental. Now there are a bunch of other strategies we can get into and that's what we'll do over the course of this series. We'll continue to make episodes about all these different strategies and, and techniques you can actually apply to fill the gaps, the big building blocks of therapy and medication. There are a million different things that we can do. And the second is a concept of prevention or what I like to call mental health pre-app. And just the same way that if we don't want a muscle to tear and we're putting it under strain and stress at the gym, we rehab, we prehab it with preventative measures. We make sure it's warmed up. We make sure we do reduce loads to get the muscle up to stretch. In the same way, our mental health is the same. Bad times will come. That is an inevitability of life. We all know this to be true. But we don't do a great job of preparing for the bad times because when the good times are rolling around, we're too busy basking in the sunshine. And that's a fantastic thing that we can do. But the analogy I like to use is there's a storm coming. Now it might be sunny on you right now. So while it's sunny, with a smile on your face, start to build a shelter. Prepare for the bad times because they'll come. And then when the storm does arrive, you won't be sitting out in the rain. Now we can do both. We can enjoy life in its current form and still prepare. Now how do we do that? Actions like meditation, mindfulness, having conversations, journaling, taking care of your mental health through eating the right things, getting the right sleep, exercising, seeing people who care about you. All of these behaviors can become day to day. They shouldn't be done under the guise of a mental health day or needing self-care. They should be done as habitual behaviors just as frequently and just as regularly as going to the gym. And this episode isn't gonna be rich with solutions as I mentioned, it's just setting up the tone for the rest of the podcast where we talk about day to day prehab, action and radical change. We're less inclined to sit here and tell you to have conversations with your friends because there are other institutions that do that. It's already emphasized. We know that that's an important part of our mental health regimen, checking in on people. What we want to do here is provide tangible, actionable, practical steps to fixing your mental health, to bulletproofing your mental health and giving you the tools to help people with theirs because not everyone will be as inclined as you might be. That's what this is all about, providing skills, 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 tools, tools, tools. So we have every base covered. We want to have steps in between feeling these symptoms in your bedroom and then going straight to therapy. This should be an, an all-life, all-embodied, all-hands-on-deck kind of movement. I'm going to wrap it up there because there's plenty of stuff to get into in future episodes. But if you appreciated today's episode, if you like the analysis of our current mental health model, if there's anything you thought we could add, anything you think we've missed, or anything you want to chat about in further detail, my DMs are open. I'm always taking messages and listening to what people have to say. 
Um, we really appreciate it if you'd share the podcast, even give it a rating on Spotify or Apple, Apple Podcasts. If you, if you like watching it in video, check it out on YouTube. It's not very engaging, but we're looking at ways to make that more interactive. Um, drop a comment, share it around, share it on your socials, and as always, check us out on TikTok and Instagram. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you in the next one. Ciao.